Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at Sardis Fellowship. This week, Pastor Emeritus Dave Lee is sharing it from John chapter 5, about the story where the man was healed at the pool. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. Good morning. Uh, back in the, oh, I suppose it was last spring or summer, Rod and I met to talk about an upcoming series, which He's completed now in the Gospel of John, but I was really blessed that they uh, did not preach from John chapter 5, one of my favorite stories, which means I get to share it with you here this morning. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to John 5, and we'll be looking through that chapter, and otherwise you can follow on on the slides on the screen. Now, if you lived in the city of Jerusalem in, say, around the year 23, so we're talking about 2,000 years ago, and if you had a disability, the pool of Bethesda was the place to be. It was said that on occasion, the waters of the pool were disturbed, and those who stepped in while the waters were disturbed would be healed. We don't know if miracles actually happened. But according to John chapter 5, verse 3, a great number of disabled people lay there every day, every day hoping for that miracle. We're not so different, you know. Maybe we don't hang around by a pool waiting for the waters to be disturbed. Although, if you're down in Florida sometime, you can visit the Fountain of Youth. I've been there. That's why I look so young. Uh, But people spend a lot today hoping to cling to youthfulness, and chasing after miracle cures. In John 5, we hear the story of one such man. He's been crippled for 38 years. When we pick up his story, we find him lying by this pool, hoping for a miracle. We don't know how long he's been lying there. We don't know how much he's suffered. We don't know the level of loneliness and helplessness that he's endured. But we do know that his wait for a miracle proved to be a disappointment. We also know that his waiting and futility ended abruptly one day when Jesus visited the pool. It happened like this. One day, Jesus visited the pool of Bethesda. And for some reason, this man caught his attention. He inquired about him and discovered that he'd been there for a long time. Moved with compassion, Jesus took action. Do you want to get well? An obvious question with an obvious answer. Of course he did. That's why he's waiting by this pool. But the pool thing isn't working out. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I try to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And so Jesus, who we know is God incarnate, God in flesh, commands him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man feels strength surging into his limbs. He leaps to his feet, dancing with joy. This is the first time on his feet in 38 years. Now, in the midst of all of his celebrating, he didn't notice that Jesus slipped away in the crowd. 
So he failed to connect with Jesus on a personal level, and he didn't even discover his name. A short time later, you would have seen this overjoyed man walking home for the first time in 38 years with his mat tucked under his arm. All is well in the world, except for one thing. It's the Sabbath, a holy day of the Jews, and working is not permitted. And strange as it sounds to us, carrying a mat on the Sabbath was considered work by some. Now, there was no law actually in the Bible explicitly forbidding carrying a mat. But the tradition of the day, enforced with vigor by the rule-bound community leaders, declared this to be work. And it was not wise to be caught working on the Sabbath. So here's this man happily strolling home, oblivious to the rules when the morality police catch up. Hey, you, what, what are you doing? Don't you know it's illegal to carry your mat on the Sabbath? What would you do in a moment like this? I mean, this is intimidating. What would you do? Well, this guy does what many other intimidated people do under similar circumstances. He shifts the blame to the stranger who healed him. The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. I mean, don't blame me. I'm just doing what I was told. Now, I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice how the religious officials don't take even a little interest in the miracle this man claims to have experienced. Here's this man, crippled for 38 years, walking home before their very eyes, and they don't take any interest in his story. All they see is a man carrying a mat on the Sabbath. See, they're so blinded by their rules. These are man-made rules as well. This is not explicitly in the Bible. That they don't even take an interest in the man's healing. All they see is a man carrying a mat on the Sabbath, and that's wrong. Now, you know, we might do the same. Suppose a person who claims to be a Christian severely struggles in their walk with God. Like they're up and down and up and down, and they're really down, like severely down. And we may think, you know, they claim to be a Christian. Uh, maybe not. But then we hear their story, and then we realize this person is a walking miracle. And that's what's happening here, only they don't take any interest in the man's story. They're judging this man without any concern about what God is doing in his life. And this kind of judgment crushes the spirit. And it brings to mind a, a crucial teaching that Jesus establishes in Matthew chapter 12. And in that text, he's also embroiled in another Sabbath debate. And here's what he says. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There's two things to note here. First is the quotation from the prophet Hosea, which we're going to look at in a moment. And second, that Jesus is claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath. That's quite a claim in light of the fact that God himself established the Sabbath. Well, let's look at this quotation from Hosea, and here it is in more full in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And uh, just a bit of background info. 
Uh, Hosea was a prophet who spoke to God's people hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. So he is a prophet who was given a message that from God to give to God's people. Here's what the message is. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offering. Now notice, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and I desire acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So what he's doing here is contrasting two higher values with a lesser value. The two higher values are mercy and acknowledgement of God. The lesser value is sacrifice and burnt offering. So he's contrasting and exacting compliance with the rules of the sacrificial system, the lesser value, with the higher values of mercy and acknowledgement of God. And notice further that the higher values of mercy and acknowledgement of God parallel the two greatest commandments according to Jesus, which are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, it's more important to love God and your neighbor than to conscientiously offer sacrifices. And in other, other words, it's possible to abide by the letter of the law while at the same time ignoring the spirit of the law. So you could offer your sacrifices even diligently without loving God or caring for people. Would you agree? I think this is what Hosea is saying. Don't bother offering a sacrifice at the temple if you're unwilling to honor God and show mercy to others. And another way of putting it is, God is not willing to accept a sacrifice from the hands of an unmerciful, superficially committed person. Okay, I feel like I have thoroughly overexplained this. And this is something for all of us to consider when we give our offerings to God. Those offerings could be of money, or they could be of service, or worship, or even self-sacrifice. The question is this, do we do it for love of God and love of others? It's like a surprising and almost strange-sounding statement of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says this, If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. You could sacrifice your very last penny. You could embrace an impoverished lifestyle. But if you do this for pride, to show how generous you are, how good you are, then you're not doing it for love of God or love of neighbor. And so it's meaningless. And that really makes us think about motivation, doesn't it? Why am I doing what I'm doing, and is it for love of God and for love of others? Well, let's go back to the story. It was probably a close call for this man caught carrying his mat on the Sabbath, but following questioning, the religious leaders decide to let him go. Maybe they said to him something like this, You can go, but you better report to us the name of the man who healed you if you ever find out who it is. Now, that's total speculation on my part, I admit that. I really don't know if this was a condition of his release. 
but his subsequent actions make me wonder. So they release the man, and as God would have it, this man meets Jesus a little while later at the temple. And, and the Bible says that Jesus found him there. And this suggests that Jesus sought him. And the reason why is because there's unfinished business to take care of. Here's what it says. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Now get this. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And we think about that and wonder, I mean, what could be worse than 38 years of helplessness? What could be worse than wasting years lying beside a pool that probably doesn't work anyways? What could be worse than the suffering he faced physically and emotionally? What could be worse than the isolation, loneliness, and futility he endured? And Jesus says, there is something worse. Friend, stop sinning because there is something worse that could happen to you. You may face the consequence of your sin. Listen to how Jesus expresses this a little while later in this same chapter. This is in chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to life. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. To be condemned. Yes, there is something far worse that could happen to him if he faces the consequence of his sin. He could rise to be condemned. These are hard words for us to hear. We don't want to hear that there's such a thing as condemnation, that there are consequences to our sin. We just don't want to hear stuff like that. So what I'm about to say is important. Remember, Jesus finds him to give him this solemn warning. He finds him. And, and I suggest that this implies an invitation. It's an invitation to hear his voice, to be saved from his sin, and to be given new life. Jesus is not being negative or judgmental. He, he actually speaks this truth in love. It, it's a tough truth, yes. But it's said with the ultimate and eternal best interests of this man in mind. As much as he gifted them with a healthy body back at the pool, he now wants to gift them with eternal life here at the temple. He wants them to rise to life. And that's why he seeks this man out. Here's a moment of consequence, a God moment. Here's a moment when God invites him to go deeper, to experience more of God's healing grace. He's experienced some of God's grace. Yes, he's walking, but now he can go deeper. He can now walk free in forgiveness and liberty from the crippling bondage of sin. There are moments like that for us, moments when God invites us to go deeper into his healing grace, moments of decision. And the question is this, will we listen to his voice 
and receive his forgiveness and grace to release us from the power of sin. So what do you do with a moment like this? What do you do with a moment of invitation? When God is inviting you to go deeper into his healing grace. And here's what I hope. I hope that if you're hearing this invitation, that you will joyfully enter into that life-giving, eternal relationship with Jesus. See, Jesus wants more for you than helping you through a tough financial situation. Or resolving a tricky problem that's got you lying awake at night. Or, or healing you of a serious illness. Not that these are small matters, and, and yes, it's absolutely wonderful when he answers our prayers about these things that, that weigh us down and, and are so crippling in our lives. But he wants more for you. He cares even more about your eternal condition. And, and I hope you take seriously the invitation given to this man to say no to the sin life and to trust in him with your whole life and your eternity. And how do you do that, you might wonder. Well, the Apostle John, who wrote this, also wrote a letter that we know as 1 John, and here's how he put it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So what he's saying is we acknowledge our sin to him and we trust in his grace to forgive us and to purify us and that's what he wants for this man at the temple and that's what he wants for you and me. This is a moment of consequence, a moment of decision. What will we do with it? What did he do with it? Well, strangely, this man walks straight out from this conversation at the temple and reports Jesus to the Jewish authorities. There's a lot we don't know here, so of course it's tempting to fill in the blanks with speculation, but whatever the motivation, this began a persecution that ultimately resulted in the death of Jesus at the hands of these hate-filled authorities. We read this, the man went, went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. The rest of John 5 is a complex teaching where Jesus challenges the religious leaders who condemn him for working, in quotes, working on the Sabbath. And in this section, he tells them straight out that he and the Father in heaven are one, which, of course, just makes all the matters worse for him. And there's one more teaching here that I want to draw to your attention. It's down in chapter 5, verses 24 and 25. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and now has come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, this is one of the most remarkable promises of Jesus. There's three things to note. One is the promise. Second is we're told how to receive this promise. And third, 
we're reassured that this promise is absolute. We have a promise. We can cross over from death to life. We're told how to receive this promise. By hearing his word and believing on God the Father who sent his one and only Son. So we hear and we believe. And then we're reassured that this promise is absolute, which gives us confidence. I mean, notice the expressions. You have eternal life. You will not be judged. You have crossed over from death to life. No uncertainty. Confident assurance. You know, it's not one bit arrogant to say with heartfelt confidence. In fact, it's humble, humbling to say this. I know Jesus, and I have eternal life because he promised it. Now, I want to conclude with a story. And uh, some of you have heard this story before. The 90% of you who know who I am and the 10% haven't. I was seriously concerned about the spiritual well-being of my great aunt and uncle. So I asked my grandmother what she knew. If her sister and brother-in-law knew the Lord. And she said to me, well, I can't really say for sure. Em and I were serving on Vancouver Island at the time. So when we visited our family in Ontario, it was on my heart to share uh, my faith with them. Even if I had to awkwardly insert it into a conversation. And you know, if you've taken my spiritual CPR course, and many of you have, that I really don't like awkwardly forcing someone into a spiritual conversation. You know, I, I wanted to be bold, but not rude, right? And there is a difference. Well, thankfully, thankfully I didn't have to. Uh, the opportunity came up naturally, and so I seized the opportunity and I ran with it because I was watching for this opportunity. So I asked my aunt, I said, Aunt Inus, do you know for sure that you have eternal life? And, and she said to me, I, I think so, David. I, I try to be a good person, so I think I'll go to heaven. So I asked her, would you like to know for sure that you're going to heaven? And she said, David, I don't think anyone can know for sure. All you can do is try your best, that's all. That was the beginning of our conversation that day. I shared with my aunt the confident assurance I have in Christ, that I'm a child of God and that I will be with him eternally. And that confidence is not rooted in me being a good person, hoping for the best, but rather in what Jesus did for me and the promise that he's made. I don't remember how the conversation ended exactly. I know it went well. And I also know that sometime later, my aunt and uncle made a clear profession of faith in Jesus. Now, here's the promise. Jesus says, very truly, that's emphatic. Like, this is a fact. Very truly, I tell you, whoever, this is for everyone, hears my word and believes in him who sent me, that's what he wants from us, to hear and to believe, has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Confident assurance. And we gain that simply by taking Jesus at his word. So what about you? Do you hear the voice of Jesus inviting you to go deeper, even as he invited this man he healed at the pool?
And what will your response be? Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, I am so thankful that we can have confident assurance in this life that we can experience eternity in your presence. We hear and we believe. We confess our sin and we trust that you will cleanse us and purify us. And I pray, Father, that if there's any person having this moment of consequence right now, that they would earnestly open their heart to you and experiencing the refreshing, the healing that goes deeper than any other kind of healing we can experience. Right now, in this moment, in Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.